The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language, their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth like a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Sir Bertrand Russell was an avowed agnostic, and uh, one evening at a dinner party, he was uh, questioned by a lady who happened to be a believer. And she said, Lord Russell, suppose you should die and wake up in the other land and discover you were wrong. What will you say to God? And in his usual brash manner, Lord Russell said, I will say to him, Sir, you did not give us enough evidence. It's rather interesting that Lord Russell's collaborator, the great philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, with whom he wrote three of the greatest volumes on mathematics ever written, Whitehead became a theist. He examined the same material and became a theist. Lord Russell examined that evidence and became an agnostic. I doubt that anyone can ever say to God, Sir, you did not give us enough evidence. For to the hearing ear and the seeing eye and the believing heart, there is evidence all around us. You see, God is not hiding from men. Men are hiding from God. There's the difference. 
Billy Sunday used to say that an agnostic cannot find God for the same reason a criminal cannot find a policeman. He's not looking. Well, there may be some people who sincerely are looking and they miss the evidence. I don't see how they can. It's men who are hiding from God, not God who is hiding from men. And Psalm 19 is the great declaration of the evidence that God has given to us that he is there. Now, in Psalm 19, we have three revelations of God. They are so obvious, I don't see how anyone can miss them. In verses 1 through 6, God reveals himself to us in creation. In 7 through 11, he reveals himself to us in his word. And then in 12 through 14, he reveals himself to us in salvation in our hearts. Here then are the three great revelations of God. Here is the evidence that he's given to us. Verses 1 through 6, God reveals himself in creation. Now the believer looks at this world and sees God. I enjoy reading the Psalms. I confess to you that often in my devotional reading, I linger over the Psalms. I suppose you do too. Because the Psalms seem to be born out of the experience of people who had such close contact with God, even back in those Old Testament days. So many of the Psalms, we find the psalmist looking out at the world and seeing God. I was interested in rereading Psalm 29, which I'll not read to you. But Psalm 29 is a picture of a storm. Here is David. I don't know where he is, perhaps out in a cave somewhere or or he's out of doors somewhere because he's watching this storm and he hears the thunder and he sees the rain and he sees the lightning. And it's sort of like that storm we had the other day. Everything was just sort of shaking. But David didn't say, I heard thunder. He said, I heard the voice of God. And David didn't say, I, uh, I feel the earth shaking. He said, it's God who is shaking things. He didn't look upon this storm and wonder what the weatherman was going to say. He looked at this storm and he said, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. The Lord sitteth king forever. In other words, he looked at nature and he saw God. This is true all the way through the Psalms. This was true of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah said, Now lift up your eyes and look at the one who created all these things. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. How interesting that hundreds and hundreds of years ago he should talk about the circle of the earth when most people believed that the earth was flat. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are like grasshoppers. He said, just look up and behold all that he's made. Of course, the greatest example of seeing God in creation is our Lord Jesus Christ. When he thought about the birth of a baby, he thought about being born again. When he saw the sparrow fall to the ground, he said, my father was there. He knows all about those sparrows. When he looked at the lilies, he said Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. When he saw a sower going out to sow seed, our Lord said, uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm sowing the seed of the word of God. He talked about the rain falling upon the just and the unjust. He talked about people who could discern the face of the sky, red sky at night, sailor's delight, 
red sky at morning, sailors take warning. That was one of their uh, slogans back in that day. But they couldn't discern the signs of the times. You see, our Lord was conscious that God, the Father, was present in creation. This is why he was never afraid of storms. He was never afraid of being hungry. He said, my father can take care of it. Here are 5,000 people. Where's the food going to come from? My father is in the business of multiplying food. He can take care of it. Lord, carest thou not that we perish? And he stands up and says, peace be still. My father knows all about the storms. You see, back in a day, it was very superstitious. Our Lord just walked through life and wasn't worried about creation. Somebody at this point may say, but pastor, you've forgotten that just a few weeks ago was a great earthquake. What about God there? There are places in this world where people are hungry, famine, pestilence. What about God there? Well, it's obvious that this world is not the way God made it. My God is the God of creation, but he's not responsible for the mess that this world is in. And at some point in time, there have been tremendous convulsions. In fact, uh, Paul tells us that all of creation is groaning and travailing like a woman going to have a child. There's pain that goes through all of creation. Why? Because creation has been subject to bondage because of Adam's sin. And therefore, we have such things as plagues and droughts and famines, and earthquakes. But this does not come from the hand of God, although God rules and overrules. Sin is in this world. But the believer looks beyond the sin that's in this world, and he sees the God of creation. Now, what does creation tell us about God? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, that means that empty space between earth and and the heavens showeth forth his handiwork. Out there in the firmament, here on earth, up there in the heavens, the broad expanse of God's creation, what does it reveal? Well, it reveals, first of all, the existence of God. There is a God. I was chatting with a fellow one day who tried to convince me that there was no God. He said, why scientists have examined everything. I said, wait just a minute, stop right there. It takes a mind to understand creation. Therefore, there must be a mind behind creation. And he blinked his eyes and said, I never thought of that. And that's part of the problem with some of these people. They never thought. If it takes the mind of man to understand either a cell or a planet or a universe, then there must be a mind behind it. And all of creation is saying to us, there is a God. There is a creator. In fact, so important is this doctrine that Paul builds the book of Romans on it. When you read the first chapter of Romans, beginning about verse 18, Paul doesn't start with the gospel. Paul starts with creation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men who hold down the truth in sin and rebellion. For the invisible things of him are clearly seen, so that they are without excuse. I had a missions professor at seminary who spent 25 years in the Congo. He told us in class one day, 
the names that the Congolese I worked with, the names they had for God, the true God, are very similar to the names for God in the Hebrew Old Testament. I wonder where they learned that. Paul tells us that all of creation tells us that there is a God. Now, what does it tell us about this God? That he's a God of power and that he's a God of wisdom. That's what creation says. There is a God. What kind of a God is he? He's a God of power. No weakling could ever have made this universe. In fact, the very fact that we use the word universe, U-N-I means one, Universe means that there's a, there, there's a unity behind it. Why is there a unity behind it? It all came from the same God. He's a God of power. Only a God of power could, could make the galaxies. Only a God of power could, could make a cell such as we have. He's a God of power. He's a living God. He's a God who has a mind to think with, and he has power to act with. This is what creation tells us. The order of creation, day after day and night after night, the beauty of creation, the amazing interdependence of creation, all tell us that our God is a God of power and a God of wisdom and a God of order. The reason the world's in the mess it's in is because we have interfered with that order. We've interfered with the water, and consequently it gets polluted. And we interfere with the insect life, and consequently birds begin to die. And we interfere with something else, and before long something else gets out of balance. It wasn't that way when God made it. The psalmist tells us here that the uh, creation reveals the existence of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God silently. When I read the scripture, I left out the word where in verse 3 because it's in italics. It was added there by the translators. It's not needed. It's not in the original language. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. And that's a good thing. If there were some audible speech, you'd have to translate it. You see, my Bible has to be translated if I'm going to take it to South America or Vietnam or someplace else. But nature doesn't have to be translated. Whether it's, a, whether it's a person in the middle of India or someone in the middle of Indiana, it makes no difference. Either one can look up and see and hear the witness of creation. It's a silent witness. It is a steady witness. The day gives the witness and then turns it over to the night. And the night gives the witness and turns it over to the day. It's an abundant witness. Day unto day poureth out speech. It's not just a little thing done in a corner. God does not put a little poster in the corner and say, I am God. God writes it across the skies. God puts it into the mountains. God puts it down into the cell. I've been reading a book lately by a biologist on cells. You know, there's a little world down in there that would just shake you. Whether you get behind a telescope and see the vastness of creation or whether you get into the uh, eyepiece of a microscope and look down into some little cell, you are overawed at the power and the wisdom of God. I have a hard time believing that all of this order and all of this beauty and all of this power 
came accidentally. I have to believe that behind creation is the Creator. And so the heavens declare this silently and abundantly and universally. He tells us here there's no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. That's the thing that Paul lays hold of. Paul says God has given them witness of himself. People come to me often and say, Pastor, are the heathen lost? And I answer yes, whether they're heathen in Chicago or heathen anyplace else, they're lost. People have the idea that our quote-unquote heathen friends who have never seen a Bible, never heard a hymn, are somehow in a different category from people in Chicago. They're not. People in Chicago are more lost than those people are. But they are sinning against a flood of light. Dan Crawford the Plymouth Brethren missionary who spent so much of his life in Africa came out and he said, they are sinning against a flood of light. That's what Romans 1 says. They know the truth. They reject the truth. They suppress the truth. They substitute their lie for the truth. And the result, of course, is God says, all right, I'm just going to give you up. Go ahead and live the way you want to live, which is the worst judgment in all the world. It's a universal witness all of nature is preaching a constant sermon. I'd like to dwell on that for a little while, but I'll not. I want to drop it into your heart, though. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, nature begins to preach a sermon to you because your day is going to go from light to darkness. That's a sermon. Jesus picked that up, and he said, Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. You see, life goes from light to to darkness. The seasons preach a sermon. We go from spring to summer to harvest to winter. That's the way the human heart goes. When the human heart is young and tender, it's springtime. Then there's that summertime when the sunshine of God's love shines down. Then there's that harvest time when a person ought to give his heart to Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't, the next thing is winter. Jeremiah said, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, we're not saved. John the Baptist said, whenever you see a tree being chopped down, the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. You better stop and think, God will chop you down someday. The psalmist said, and James picks it up and Peter picks it up, the psalmist said that man's life is just like the grass that comes up in the morning and by night they've mowed it down and thrown it into the fire. What is man? His life is just like, just like grass. You see, nature's preaching a sermon. And we better listen to that sermon because nature points to God. There's the witness of God in creation. That's verses 1 through 6. There's the witness of God in Scripture. In 7 through 11, he talks about God's Word. Because, you see, God's creation leads us to God's Word. Sometime we're going to have a 5.30 club meeting on things that scientists learn from the Bible. It's rather amazing how people of God, who were also scientists, learned from the Word of God. He moves from creation to the revelation in Scripture. And he tells us what the Bible is and what the Bible does. I won't go into detail on this because these verses are so obvious. But allow me to point out one important matter. 
he changes in verse 7 from God to Lord. Creation says he is God. The word of God says he is Lord. Because that word Lord there, capital L-O-R-D, all caps, means Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, the personal God. Not just Elohim, the faraway creator God. No, no. This is Jehovah. When you open your Bible, it's Jehovah God who speaks to you. He tells me that my Bible is the perfect law of God. There's no error in it. It's the sure testimony of God. I don't have to be afraid of it. It is the right statute of God. Everything about it is right. It is the pure commandment of God. Everything about it is clean. He even calls the Bible the fear of the Lord. That's another name for the Bible. Because when you, when you come to the word of God, it gives to you that reverence for God. You know what he's saying here? He's saying what the sun is to the physical life. S-U-N. The Bible is to the spiritual life. That's what he's saying. Back in the early section, he talked about the sun in the morning coming out of his tabernacle and running across the heavens with the glory of a bridegroom and with the strength of a runner. Where would we be without the sun? Everything would die. Too much sun, everything would die. No sun, everything would die. If the tilt of the earth were just a little bit different, the sun would burn us all up. See, God's arranged this. And the psalmist is saying what the sun is to the physical creation, the word of God is to the spiritual creation. We base a great deal on that sun. Were it not for the fact that God had put laws into this universe, our men would never have gotten to the moon. The fact that God wrote these laws into the universe and they are dependable got us to the moon and got us back again. He says, just as there are dependable laws in creation, so the word of God is his dependable law. And what will it do for you? Well, he tells us what it will do for us. In verse 7, the word of God will convert you. Creation won't do that. You'll never learn about the grace of God in salvation from creation. It's not there. Oh, there are illustrations that the Bible gives to us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's from creation. I'm going out to seek the lost sheep. That's from creation. But you'd never get that by yourself. You'd look at that snow and say, oh, I wish my heart were as white as that snow. That's where the Bible comes in and says, you can be cre converted. The God of creation is the God of salvation. What does the word of God do for us? Well, it converts the soul. It makes wise the simple. That's a marvelous thing to get your wisdom from the word of God. The word simple there does not mean a simpleton. The word simple there means someone who is open to God's truth. The word of God rejoices your heart. Do you find joy in God's word? The word of God enlightens your eyes. It's amazing how many people walk around with their eyes closed stumbling around in the darkness. So many times people come with problems and you say, now look, what does the Bible say about this? I don't know. Did you try to find out? No. You know, you would have saved yourself a lot of trouble if you just found out what the Bible had to say about this. The word of God enlightens the eyes. The word of God endures forever. That means you can build your life on it. 
If I build my life on the word of God, it's going to endure forever. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The word of God satisfies like the sweetness of the honey. Unsafe people don't understand this. Carnal Christians don't understand it. How a Christian can just sit and meditate on the word of God and get the sweetness and the nutrition and the energy that there is in the honey of God's word. It's too bad that we live in a world that has to be entertained all the time. It's gotten into uh, Christian circles. We have to have evangelical entertainment all the time. We just simply can't take the music of the word and the message of the word and just be nourished by it. He says here the word of God is valuable. I'd rather have the word of God than fine gold. Let me just drop this into your heart, my friend. Anything in your life that's worth anything is going to come from the Word of God. It's the Word of God that puts gold into our lives. Many people are building on clay. They're building with wood and hay and stubble. He says, I'm building my life on the Word of God. The God of creation is the God of the Word. And if I obey this Word, everything in all of creation works for me. If I disobey this Word, everything works against me. Think of Jonah. Jonah disobeyed the word of God and everything worked against him. The storm worked against him. The fish worked against him. The worm worked against him. The gourd worked against him. Everything in creation worked against him until he surrendered and then everything started working for him. That's why whenever you find the Lord Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything in creation works for him. The fish worked for him. The storms worked for him. The animals worked for him. Everything in creation worked for him, except men. And they had the most to gain and the most to lose. And so the God of creation is the God of the Bible, and God has revealed himself in the Bible, which leads us to our third revelation, 12 through 14, God reveals himself in the human heart. He's the God who speaks to us within. Question, why is it so many people don't see God in creation? Why is it so many people don't even see God in the Bible? Because something's wrong with their heart. You can write this down as a principle. People see what they love. If a person is in love with lust, he will find a, an X-rated movie theater like that. If a person's in love with eating, he'll find a restaurant just like that. If a person loves books or music, he'll find a bookstore or a music store where nobody else can find it. If a person's in love with God, he'll find God. He'll see God in creation. It's an interesting thing when you're on vacation and you're at some place where it's really beautiful. You're standing maybe looking at a mountain range or a sunset or a beautiful valley or a river. You've all been to places like this where there's just marvelous majesty and beauty. And you've turned and said to your wife or your son or your friend, hasn't God made a beautiful world? But the people over there aren't talking like that. They're throwing beer cans down in the valley and, and, and they're cursing and they're saying, did you got a picture? Did you got a picture? They don't know a thing about God. always amazes me, these people that run around with their cameras, when they get home, they can't remember what they saw. 
They have photographic minds, but nothing ever develops. That's the whole problem. <laughs> Even here in the city, some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen, I've seen here in the city of Chicago. Beautiful. Some of our spring sunsets when it's just salmon-colored and gray and gold. Marvelous. And your first thought is God. Who put color up there? God did. Who arranged the prism up there to reflect all this color? God did. Now, why don't people see God? Something wrong with the heart. That's the reason why. So he moves down into the heart. Verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. We commit sins we know nothing about. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Keep back thy servant also from deliberate sins. There are errors that we commit in ignorance and there are sins we commit in impudence. We deliberately disobey God. And when we do, we're sinning against creation, our own bodies. We're sinning against the word. And so he's praying, dear God, you're the God of creation. I worship you. You're the God of the word. I learn from you. But more than that, you are the God who dwells in my heart. You see, creation leads to the word and the word leads to Christ. You say, illustrate it. I'll do it right now. When our Lord Jesus was born, creation announced that he was born. God put a star up there. And off yonder in a faraway country were some astrologers who were studying the heavens, and they saw the star, and they began to follow the star. The star led them to the scriptures. They got to Jerusalem and they said, uh, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And the priest said, well, the scriptures tell us he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So the star of creation led them to the scriptures and the scriptures led them to the Savior. And they followed the word of God and came to Bethlehem and found the Savior. This is why whenever the apostle Paul preached to Gentile audiences, he always started with creation. He didn't start with Genesis chapter 3 or Leviticus chapter 17. When Paul preached to Gentiles, he preached creation, the God of creation. Then he moved into the God of the word. Then he moved into the God of the heart. By the way, we have to do that today. You can't talk to the average person in Chicago about the scriptures. You've got to start with the God of creation, the God who made you, the God who keeps you alive, in whom we live and move and have our being. But ultimately it leads to the God who cleanses the heart, the God who moves into the heart. And then we can pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Those last two words are the key to the psalm. If he is your Redeemer, you'll see him in creation. Remember that rich farmer that Jesus talked about? Behold, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he said with himself, what shall I do? For I don't have room to bestow all my goods. This will I do. 
I will tear down my barns and I will build greater. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And that night God spoke to him and said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? The pronouns in that parable are interesting. What shall I do? This will I do. I will tear down my barns. I will build greater. I will say to my soul. You see, here's a man who looked at creation. But instead of creation being a window through which he saw God, it was a mirror in which he saw himself. Why? Because his heart was so filled with self. People say to me, Pastor, I can't see God in creation. You're not saying anything about God when you say that, but you're saying a great deal about yourself. Creation is not a mirror at which I look and see myself. What will I do? Creation is a window through which we see God. And having seen the greatness of God in creation and the grace of God in the Scriptures, then we experience the very life of God down in our hearts. That's the ultimate for the whole thing. St. Augustine was right when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I started with Bertrand Russell. Let me end with him. On his 92nd birthday, Lord Russell was interviewed over BBC television. And they asked him the question, since he was a philosopher and a scientist and a world traveler and to some degree a politician, they said, Lord Russell, uh, is there any secret to happiness in this world? And he answered in these words, quote, the secret of happiness is to face the fact that the world is horrible, unquote. Well, what more would you expect from an agnostic? The world is horrible. And you know, you leave God out of creation, the world is horrible. You leave the Bible out, the world is horrible. You leave God out of your heart, the world is horrible. But not for the Christian. The world wasn't horrible for Jesus. The song wasn't written back then, but I'm sure he could have sung it. David would have sung it. Abraham would have sung it. Isaiah would have sung it. Paul would have sung it. This is my father's world. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and you enter into a new day, you're not walking into something diabolical and horrible and treacherous. When the child of God is in the will of God, everything in the world is working for him. He knows the God of creation. He knows the God of the word. He knows the God of salvation. D.L. Moody said, when I got saved, I got a new world. <laughs> Heaven above is softer blue and earth beneath is brighter green. Something shines in every hue. This is true. It's a marvelous thing when you give your heart to Christ and just live for him. He hands you a whole new world. Not a horrible world, a friendly world. I don't mean the world of society that's opposed to Jesus. I mean the world that God made. God becomes the one who feeds you and who clothes you and who sends the rain and the sunshine and 
and life is exciting because you're living in the Father's world. And he gives you a whole new book. And wherever you turn in this book, you meet him and you find out how much he loves you. He gives you a whole new heart. Then the words of your mouth that come out of the meditation of this brand new heart are acceptable in his sight. I would say to you tonight, my friend, that God has given us a lot of evidence, plenty of it. The problem is not that God is hiding from you. You may be hiding from God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and that glory can be a part of your life if you'll surrender to him. Gracious Father, thank you that we can live in your world. You made it. You hold it together. And even though it is scarred by the ravages of sin, this is still your world. And we're grateful, Father, for the beauty of it and the order of it. All of science depends upon the order of the world that you made. Oh, God, cleanse our hearts. We don't know our own sins. Forgive us for presumptuous sin, deliberate disobedience. Cleanse us from secret error. Keep our hearts clean and yielded that we might find you in the word and find you in the world. And may the beauty and the splendor and the wonder and the glory of all of this reflect through us to glorify Christ. I pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't know the Savior that he might trust him. Any Christian who's discouraged, afraid, encourage them, Father. For Jesus' sake, amen.